0: You know, whenever you read the, the the story of creation and you look at um, the fall of man, have you ever just have you ever just thought to yourself, just stop for a moment and just said, Adam, my brother, you just had one job. You that's all you had. You just had one job and you blew it. And as a result, all of us are still paying the price. Nice work, Adam. Nice work, Eve. You just had one job and you didn't quite get it done. Now, for some of you who may be wondering what exactly I'm talking about here, I'm going to just fill you in. In Genesis chapter 1 through 2, we see the we see the story of creation. In 6 literal days, God creates everything from light to water, to plants, to the sun, the moon, stars, animal, and then he he finishes with man and then on the 7th day he does what? Okay, He takes a break. He rests. But after the events of the creation and after they take place, God takes Adam and Eve and he puts them in the Garden of Eden and he gives them one command. He says, Adam, you have one job, just one. And here's what he tells them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else in the garden, Adam, it's yours. I mean, you're over all of it—the plants, animals, everything—and everything that you see that looks good to eat, you can eat. You can eat it, but don't eat from this one tree. And we know the story: Satan, who uh, was a fallen angel, comes to Eve in the form of. The Bible calls it a serpent, no we believe it was a snake, and he gets her to to not only question god 's word but he lies to her about god 's word and then he tempts her and Eve gives into the temptation, she eats the, free, the, the fruit from the tree, she, she gives some to Adam, who we see in the Bible was standing right next to her her at the time, and instead of stopping her, he eats the fruit as well, and the first sin is committed, and as a result, we have what is known as the fall of man. And again, we scratch our heads and we just want to yell out and we want to ask the question, Adam, why did you do this? You had one job. You were living in paradise. You had it made. Why did you give into this one temptation? Why did you fall? Why did Adam fall? Well, if you take a look at what the snake said to Eve in in verse 5 of chapter 3, God begins to kind of roll this out for us. This is what this is what the snake said to, the serpent said to Eve. He said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan tries to get Adam and Eve to question God's motive and his character. He he wants them to believe that this command that he has given them is not about their protection. It's not about submitting to God's best plan for their lives. He wants them to believe that this was all about God holding back something good from them. This was all about God being worried and jealous that somehow or another they would become like him. They would be God's if they actually ate from the tree. And when you look at this story, I want to ask you, does that sound familiar to anyone? Has Satan ever lied to you in this way? Have you ever looked at any of God's commands in the Bible and just thought to yourself, you know, God, it, it appears to me that you're holding something good from me. It looks good. It feels good. It, it just appears to me that you're basically, I, when I look at these commands, it appears to me that you want to just rob me of all of my joy. And that's what Adam and Eve are being faced with here. And with this, Satan speaks directly to Eve with Adam looking on and he hits her with three deadly temptations. Look at verse 6, chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh... And then it was the uh, delight to the eyes, which was the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now we see the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, if you remember, before Jesus started his earthly ministry, he made a decision to fast. For 40 days. He didn't eat anything for 40 days so that he could get himself prepared to do his earthly ministry. And during those 40 days, Satan shows up on the scene and he takes Jesus out into the wilderness and he tempts him with three things the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, you could take those three things, those three temptations, and you could put them into three categories power, pleasure, and pride. Power, pleasure, and pride. Matter of fact, I promise you, when you face temptation, it's always going to come in one of those three forms. It's either going to hit you with power, pleasure, or pride. Now the difference between Adam and the difference between Jesus was one fell and one didn't. One sinned and one did not. What's the difference between Adam and us? Not much. Both Were tempted and both fell. I heard someone say once, "It's not that the fall happened; it's that the fall still happens." And with that said, it's kind of hard for us to really throw Adam under the bus here when, when we still make the exact same choices, facing the exact same same temptations that were presented to Eve and to him thousands of years ago. Now, you might be asking yourself, why does Adam get such a bad rap here? Because Eve was the one, I mean, why doesn't Eve catch the flack here? It appears to, her, to, to me that she's the one that made the decision. Why is Adam the bad guy? Well, as I said earlier, in verse 6, it says that he was with her when all of this happened. But more importantly, he was the head of the relationship. He was the leader in the relationship. His responsibility was to lead Eve, and he failed. And so we see throughout Scripture that God clearly puts the blame on Adam's shoulder for the decision because he was the leader. It all falls back on leadership. So what was the result of this? What what happened as a result of the fall? Well, first of all, sin entered the world. Adam becomes the very first human sinner, even though chronologically Eve ate first. Theologically, Adam is described in Romans chapter 5, 12 to be the very first sinner. Now, what happened as a result of sin? Well, first of all, we see that it took away their innocence. Verse 7 says, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Now, before they sinned, nakedness was not an issue. Adam and Eve didn't even know that they were naked. They, they, had, they had a God-given innocence about them. They were naked and they were not afraid. Okay? But here in verse 7, we see them sowing fig leaves together to hide themselves from each other. Why? Because their innocence was gone. Sin also impacted their intimacy with God. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and the man and his wife hid themselves From the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. To me, I think this is one of the most tragic results of, of sin. Sin not only separated them from God in a spiritual sense, but it also actually made them want to hide from God. Their intimacy with the creator of the universe, the intimacy with God who they knew intimately was now impacted in a huge way. But here's the truth that we see throughout Scripture. No matter what you do, you can never hide from God. Good, bad, ugly, I don't care what the decision is, whatever it is that you're doing, you never, ever, nothing is ever hidden from God's sight. King David laid this out for us in Psalm chapter 69, verse 5. He said, Oh God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. Then it put a wedge between man and woman. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam replied to him, or God's reply, I, I, I heard, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I, and I hid myself. And then God says to him, and this verse will be familiar to you if you've been here over the last year or so. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. For the very first time in the Bible, we see the blame game being played out right in front of our eyes. God asks the infamous questions. Who told you that you were naked? And did you actually eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And immediately, Adam blames Eve, and Eve turns and goes, no, it was the snake that, that did it. It was Satan that did it. Now, i got to be honest with you, this is a picture of nearly every marriage counseling situation I have ever been involved with, all right? It's her fault. It's his fault. Satan made me do it. I mean, you hear this over and over, and you look and you go, where did all of this blame shifting originate? Right here, with our ancestors, our first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, so you might be thinking, well, can I blame Adam and Eve for all of this mess that I'm in, for everything that I do? Well, in one sense, yes, but ultimately no, because you're held personally responsible for every decision you make. We're held responsible for every sin we commit and every moment where we choose to shift blame. We're responsible for every moment where we, fe- we refuse to take responsibility. Now, at this point in the story, we're we're introduced to an attribute of God that that we have not yet seen in Scripture. We're introduced to His holiness. And as a result of this, God, God declares judgment on sin. Sin enters the world, and then God in His holiness declares judgment on sin. First of all, we see that the serpent was judged. The snake, in verse 14, was cursed by God to crawl on its belly for the rest of time. We don't exactly know what this snake looked like before the fall, but, we, but because it loaned its body to Satan, it was cursed to slither and crawl forever, and we have been afraid of these little creatures and big creatures ever since. And then we see Satan is judged. Now, I'm going to explain this a bit more in a few moments, but in verse 15, God says, there's now going to be an ongoing battle between Satan and mankind. There, there's going to be an intense hatred between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of woman. And then in verse 16, we see that woman is judged. As an indirect result of sin, from here on out, women would have pain in childbirth. So ladies, next time that you are screaming out in pain, okay, during childbirth, don't yell and blame your husband for all of that, okay? You can yell out, Eve, what did you do? Dog it, Eve. And your doctor's going to be going, what in the world? What's wrong with this woman? But this is the very first time that we see the consequences of sin in the sense of the fact that we see suffering, we see sickness and sorrow being introduced to the world. If you look at the end of verse 16, you also see something that I think is extremely interesting. And God says, and you will desire to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. And from here on out, God says, listen, there's going to be this power struggle between husbands and wives, over who's going to lead the home. I've commissioned the man to be the leader, but the woman, she's going to struggle with this design. Now, some of you, you may be seeing an all too familiar storyline developing here that maybe you have experienced yourself, and here's how it goes The man is given the responsibility to lead his wife, and somewhere along the line, he fails. In the absence of leadership, she takes over. She's looking at her kids, she's looking at the house, she's looking at the failure of, of leadership on behalf of her husband, and she says, I've got I've to step in here and lead. And again, rather than taking responsibility for the, the failure, the man blames his wife. And then... His wife turns around and blames him or she blames the situation at hand. She blames whoever. And nothing ever gets resolved. Fingers get pointed. Innocence is lost. Intimacy with God and with each other gets impacted. And we look and we go, where did this all begin? It started right here in the garden and it has carried on from generation to generation and to generation. And I would ask you, does that sound familiar to any one of you? I mean, seriously, you can't make this stuff up. But listen, I want you to know that because of Jesus, this does not have to continue. Because Jesus gave his life for the consequences of our sin, you have the power of the Holy Spirit not only in your life, but in your marriage to put an end to this mess that was started in the garden. It doesn't have to continue. You can say it stops right here with me. And then we see nature being judged. Verse 17 and 18 God curses the earth. Roses would now have thorns. Bushes would now have thistles. At this moment, the earth, it's like someone pushed a, you know, a stopwatch and, and just set things in motion. The earth would begin to get old. It would begin to decay. And eventually, the effects of sin would cause the earth to produce natural disasters, things like tornadoes and earthquakes and typhoons and tsunamis. And then we see mankind being judged. Man was judged. Look at verse 17 and. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth uh, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return." And from here on out, the man, man is, is going to have to work hard. He's going to sweat. He's going to have to till the ground to make a living for himself, to provide for his family. But he's also going to physically die. God says one day you're going to return back to the earth that you came from. You're actually going to turn into dust. And we know from Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, that tells us that Adam lived to be 930 years old. And so as a result of sin entering the world, God in his holiness, he cast judgment on the snake, he casts judgment on Satan. He casts judgment on the whole world. He pronounces a sentence of, of, of judgment upon mankind. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because of all sin. And so not only did sin bring this promise of physical death, but also it brought with it spiritual death. Death. From here on out, there would be a great divide. There would be a great chasm that would exist between God and man. And Romans 6.23 describes this this way. It says, For the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so because of sin, we actually enter into this world spiritually and eternally separated from God. We are born spiritually lost and empty. We have been sentenced to a life with no hope and no promise of a future. It's a life that is destined for a very real place that the Bible calls hell. The Bible describes it as as a place of eternal darkness and suffering and torment. However, I want you to see something very, very interesting. Please don't miss what I'm about to say to you. As God is pronouncing his judgment upon sin, he curses the serpent. He curses Satan. He curses the ground, but he never curses mankind. Why? Because as soon as man sinned, God rolled out his plan to redeem him. And I love this. Listen, it's a, it, it's in this story that we are introduced to another of God's amazing attributes. We are introduced for the very first time to grace. You see the fall is actually the beginning of God's story of grace. We see God's grace in the story of the fall of mankind as soon as Adam sinned. Where's God? We find him in the garden. What's he doing? He's seeking out Adam. As soon as Adam sinned, God's in the garden seeking him out. Now, I I know that you may have heard before that the Bible is simply a record of man's search for God, but actually it's just the opposite. The Bible is a record of God's search after man. Out of grace, God took the first step in reconciling man back to himself. How did Jesus describe the step of reconciliation? He said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Lord speaks through Isaiah in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, Come now, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God introduces grace into the fall of man as he comes into the garden and he actually seeks out Adam. And then he sees very simply that he clothes them. Verse 21, the Lord made clothing for Adam and Eve out of animal skins and he clothes them. And then we see at the end of verse 22 that he removes them from the Garden of Eden. You say, well, why did he do that? Well, this was more an act of grace than it was an act of judgment. God wanted to get them away from the tree of life. God didn't want Adam and Eve to ever be tempted by this tree of gin. He knew, I mean, sin had entered the world. To eat from this tree, to continue to eat would have caused them to live in a fallen state forever. And so he took the temptation away and he drove them out of the garden and he placed angels all around its entrance. The Bible describes them as fiery angels, seraphim, to keep anyone from ever entering this garden again. And then he does something absolutely amazing. He promises them a savior. Go back to verse 15 for a moment. He says, I will put enmity between you and woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologically, this verse could read this way. And there will be intense hatred between Satan and Christ. Eventually, Christ will crush the head of Satan while while suffering a heel wound in the process. The Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, moments after Adam and Eve had sinned, God announces his plan to send a Savior to redeem them of their sin it's the first mention of the gospel in the bible romans chapter 16 verse 20 says this the god of peace will soon crush satan under your feet the grace of the lord jesus christ be with you isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are what we are healed listen the Bible says that sin demanded, it, it demands a sacrifice, a life for a life. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Thousands of animals are being sacrificed to try to cover the sins of God's people. But not one of those sacrifice sacrifices had the ability to permanently and ultimately pay for the sin of all of mankind, to take away its consequences until God sent His Son Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Jesus did on the cross was all, God's ultimate act of grace. And a God and God announced that it was going to happen right here in Genesis chapter 3. See, we, we, we see too often, we, we look at the story of, of the fall of man as man's decision to sin against God and God's judgment against sin. And we stop here, but we forget that the story of the fall of man is actually a story of God's grace. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing. But it doesn't end there because grace is seen throughout the entire pages of the the Bible. We we see it in almost every page. Have Have you ever taken a look at who God actually used in the Bible to accomplish his will, to do great things. I mean, you look at Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. God promises him a son. And in his impatience, in his wife's impatience, he sleeps with another woman named Hagar, and he gives birth to a son, another son named Ishmael, who would become the father of the Muslim nation. And you see, you see Sarah, God promises her a, a, a son, and she laughs at God. And God says, is, is, is anything too hard for me, Sarah? And she gets impatient, and she sets up this whole thing between Abraham and Hagar. Their son Isaac cheats his oldest son, Esau, out of his birthright. Moses, we see the, the deliverer of the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. He was a murderer, and he disobeyed God by striking a rock. King David, a man after God's own heart, he has an affair with a woman and he murders her husband. Noah, the man that God used to rescue mankind from the flood, what did he do after it was over? He got drunk. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. I want you to preach to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah ran the other way. Rahab, who is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, who was she? She was a prostitute. Gideon, one of Israel's judges, was insecure. Elijah the prophet, he was moody and struggled with discouragement. Peter had a temper and denied Jesus three times. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of Christians. And all of them were messed up, and yet God used them in a significant way. And you look at them and you go, how could that be that God just reaches in and just picks out all of these messed up, people and uses them to do his will here's how the apostle paul describes it as he was struggling with he with what he called a thorn in the flesh he asked god three times pleaded with god take it away and god said to him i'm not taking away and paul said my grace and actually god said my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast god paul says all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of christ may rest upon me The Bible is full from cover to cover of God's stories of using messed up people because of his grace. Look around you right now. Look around you right now. Look at the person sitting next to you. We are all trophies of God's grace. You are looking at a man here today in front of you. I am nothing more than a trophy of God's grace. And then we see a promise of God's grace in the end. He promises to restore everything and make all things new. And in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about end times. We're going to talk about heaven and hell and a new earth. But I'm going to give you just a little bit of a preview. In the very end, after the rapture of God's people, after the tribulation, after Armageddon, after what the Bible calls the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, after Satan and his whole nasty little crew are thrown into hell, and God replaces the earth with a new one, I want you to, I want you to hear what... what God announces in Revelation 21, verse 5, and he said, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. At the very end, because of his grace, God makes it all new. He restores it back to how he created it. And then finally, because of grace, God has demonstrated his ability to pick you back up put you on your feet once again and restore you. Some of you in this room, you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, but somehow or another you have fallen. You are a Christian, but sin has caused your heart to be cold. You have somehow or another fallen away from God. You haven't lost your salvation, but you've lost your intimacy. You've lost the closeness. You've lost that closeness that used to exist between you and God. Listen, I want you to know God is pursuing you this morning, and he is not going to stop. He is never going to stop. And his grace continuously speaks out to you and says, come on back to me. Come on back to me. Some of you are in a marriage situation that to you just seems simply beyond repair and His grace says nothing is beyond God's ability. Some of you are struggling this morning with an addiction, with a sinful habit, a hurt, something like bitterness or jealousy. And I want to remind you what Paul says, what God says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect, perfect in your weakness. And some of you are lost in your sin. You're spiritually separated from God. You walked into this room this morning. God brought you. He's been seeking after you. And you've never received God's free gift of forgiveness and salvation or an opportunity to be released from the consequences of sin. Listen, because of God's holiness, sin demanded judgment. It demanded payment. Things had to be made right. God didn't just come into the garden to pronounce judgment. He came also to pronounce grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, thus, thus it is written, The first man Adam became a life living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Here's what all this means. Because of man's sin, we were sentenced to die But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are offered life. Whereas Adam's actions took life, the actions of Jesus gives life. Adam had one job, and he failed. God sent Jesus to earth with one job, and he succeeded victoriously. You may have walked into this room this morning condemned, unforgiven, separated from God, sentenced to death, but I want you to know that because of Jesus and God's grace, God offers you redemption. God offers you a chance to be reconciled back to him. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you a personal relationship. He offers you eternity in heaven, and he offers you a new life here on this earth. I want us to bow our heads for just a moment.